I want you to meet me, if you would, in the Old Testament book of Micah. I tell you this so that you'll have time to look it up, because Micah is not one of the most popular texts, uh, books of the Bible. In fact, Micah is what some I have kind of referred to as one of the crispy books in your Bible. And I mean crispy because the pages still crack when you go back into those little Old Testament. He's, he's a minor prophet, and he's not minor because he's unimportant. He's minor because his book's not very long. He's incredibly important. We're going to take a look at one of those very important passages tonight together. Before we read, I want to set this up with just a couple of thoughts um, that, that sort of get us ready and in the right mentality uh, in order to understand what Micah the prophet's trying to say to us. It's the Christmas season, and I know people watch and listen to these videos outside of this room at all times of the year. Um, but the Christmas season, the Advent season, is universal. We don't have to be in December or the weekend of Christmas in order to talk about the arrival of Jesus. And so I really think it's timeless. In fact, I think it's kind of a shame that we save talking about the arrival and the, the, the advent and the birth of Jesus. We just save that for Christmas. It's like it's really rare to go to church in May and hear a message on the birth of Christ. I, I realize why, because you've got that prime time in December to set that stuff up. But um, it does seem like we've relegated the advent story to, the, to this season. But I don't want to miss the opportunity either to talk about it. I heard someone make this comment this week and it, this wasn't new i had heard i've heard stuff like this my entire life it just kind of got hit me in the face this week the comment from a ministry that said the nativity story is only in two gospels not all four only two and the early church didn't apparently celebrate the birth of christ because they don't talk about it as a celebration in the new testament so why are we spending so much time on it? I get their point. But at the same time, what that tells me is they're not reading the Old Testament very much. Because even though only two of the four Gospels tell the Nativity story, and the early church doesn't talk about Christmas, you can't read the Old Testament without thinking about anticipating the arrival of Jesus. The about receiving onto the earth God wrapped in human flesh. When we talk about Advent and we're talking about the arrival of Jesus, we're talking about anticipation. We're talking about the excitement of anticipating the arrival of Christ. We're talking about looking at the darkness of this world and receiving the light that comes from heaven in the form of Christ being born on the earth. We don't get that physically now because we're not looking for Christ to come and be born. But we still have the same anticipation of Christ being born in our neighbor. Me seeing Jesus in you and seeing Jesus in you, seeing Jesus in them, in the other. And that anticipation keeps the church fueled. It's part of what keeps us moving forward is, wow, what if my neighbor could meet Jesus? What if that other that stranger could know Jesus and so even though we're not looking for a new nativity we are looking for an arrival of Christ even if it's the arrival that consummates all of the ages what we're looking for is the arrival of Christ in 
you and Christ in me. And so I don't buy this idea that just because two gospels only talk about the nativity and the early church doesn't celebrate Christmas, or how do we know? But we don't see it, that maybe it's something we ought to overlook. No, I think we need to go back to those Old Testament stories and watch how some of those prophets anticipated him coming, his arrival. That Old Testament, don't get, don't get into the trap of thinking the Old Testament's all law. So I don't need to read the Old Testament because that's law. Okay, you don't read the Old Testament for your righteousness. Granted, there's nothing in there that can make you righteous. You can keep the law, you won't be righteous. You won't be able to keep the law anyway. But you could, and it still wouldn't make you righteous because only the blood of Jesus that is the righteousness of God in us is where righteousness is found. So, but don't throw the Old Testament out because you don't need Moses. Instead, read it through the lens of a people highly anticipating the arrival of their Redeemer. They go, he's coming. He's coming. All the way from Moses, all the way from Jacob prophesying at his deathbed, through Moses, all the way through the Old Testament, he's coming. He's going to be our Savior. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to redeem the world. All the way up to John the Baptist going, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's that apex moment. It's, it's this, almost this uphill climb in the Old Testament going, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. It's going to be great. Someday God's going to be here. Someday our Redeemer's coming. They didn't know what he was going to look like. They didn't know what he was going to be named. They're picking up little hints about what it's supposed to look like through the voices of the prophets. But the arrival of Jesus is this blast, this trumpet blast on the scene of humanity that God has decided to take on a human form for all eternity. Should you think about that? That God has taken on a human form for all of eternity. He decided to be one of us die as us, resurrect into what we're going to so that he could take on the form of a man. This is an exciting season. It's an exciting time in, in our lives and it's an exciting time in the, in the period of the Bible where we're leading up to that arrival of Jesus. When you get into the New Testament, you turn the page into Matthew and here comes the Gospels. Matthew gives a pretty detailed account of the nativity story. Only Matthew and Luke give you the real fullness of that Jesus being born story. But Matthew's version includes a lot of the dreams uh, of Joseph and the, the encounters they have going down into Egypt and, uh, and, and all of this. And whenever Matthew kind of turns that corner into the second year of Jesus, Jesus is now living in Nazareth. He's a baby. He's a toddler. We're out of the manger scene, but we're into the toddler scene. And here comes the wise men, what we call the three wise men, even though there's no number of wise men in the Bible. There's three gifts by a bunch of wise men. So we don't know how many there are, but here come the wise men and they're giving gifts into the home of, of toddler Jesus. Uh, and they go to King Herod and Herod wants to know where is this boy, All right? And he calls around him all the Old Testament. They wouldn't have called themselves that. They only had one testament. They didn't look at it like this is the Old Testament. There's a new one coming. But he called all the Old Testament scholars in and he said, is it true? These guys came from a long way off to bring gifts to a king. I haven't heard of this king. What king are they talking about? Because this is kind of insurrection talk, right? This king talk. He goes, what king are they talking about? And the scribes quote the book of Micah because they know the Old Testament. Remember that uphill climb? He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. They know those scriptures, those little moments in the Old Testament. They go, he's coming and we want to see what he looks like. And so they quote the book of Micah so that they can locate where you could find him, 
where you could find this child. I want to read from Micah chapter 5, meet me in verse 2. And I want to read for you a little bit of what the scribes quote in Matthew 2. This is what they tell Herod when they want to find out where is this king. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. I'll stop there. That's essentially the text that they quote in Matthew 2. When the wise men say, where is he? We want to meet him. And the scribes say, look at verse 2 of Micah 5, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. There's your Old Testament prophecy of the city of Bethlehem, also known as the city of David. And that's why they run to Bethlehem in order to find this one, Jesus Micah doesn't mention Jesus. Micah doesn't mention mangers. Micah doesn't mention shepherds and the star and all of the things that happen in the nativity, but he mentions the landing spot. And the scribes saw that as the place where Bethlehem will bring forth the child. So if you've ever wondered why Bethlehem or how did they know it would be Bethlehem, this is just an example. I'm not only reading this so that you'll have an example. We're going to work with this, but this is a spot, okay? This is one of many moments in the Old Testament where you can piece together the prophecies of what he's going to look like. We're going to show you one more before we're done tonight, but if you take the corpus, the body of that Old Testament, and you start to highlight those moments, you end up with the nativity, which is Jesus. So I don't buy the argument that the Bible doesn't talk a lot about the arrival of Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. The Bible talks constantly about the arrival of Jesus. It was all they were thinking about. It was all they were looking forward to. And then you could say that the New Testament is them just looking back on him and talking about him more and then anticipating his fullness and his arrival in all of us, which leaves me with this thought. We probably should be talking about Jesus. In Christianity, we should probably be focused on Jesus. He's the object of the Old Testament. He's the focus of the Gospels, and he's all the New Testament knows to write about. It's probably what we should focus on. Because in the Jesus story, everything, all of our hopes and dreams are wrapped up. It's God in human flesh showing us who we are and showing us what we are. Now, you'll notice in verse 2 that it's Bethlehem of Ephrathah. I want to skip that for a moment. It's the most common, it's the most popular thing in that text is Bethlehem. Probably everyone would have got the trivia question correctly. What town was Jesus born in? Churched or non-churched? You've heard, oh, little town of Bethlehem. You could have took a shot in the dark and went, "Mm, okay, there's a song at Christmas called a little town of Bethlehem. I'm just going to take a guess. Probably Bethlehem. Ding, ding, ding. You get it. You don't even have to know Micah 5. You didn't know how much you knew Micah 5, but Bethlehem, boom, Micah 5 too. So I want to skip that for a moment because that's really going to be the body of our work tonight is Bethlehem and Ephrathah. But I'm going to leave it alone because there's some other imagery in this chapter that I really want to bring out about Jesus. 
Any chance I get to talk about Jesus, I want to pounce on it. I love to bring out the stories about Jesus, to focus your attention on Jesus. Together, we see him. If you're like me, when you see him, you're impressed. You can't help but be impressed. What we get used to doing is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John stories. Those are great. I love to spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John stories. I also like to realize that the Old Testament stories that anticipated that uphill, we're getting to Jesus. If you can dig into those stories, man, you can get images of Jesus that really get fleshed out in the Gospels, but you can see what they were looking for. You're looking back, okay? There he is. They're looking into a glass darkly, kind of. He's coming. He's going to be something like this. And then we, we get to see him in Jesus. And then we get to watch that happen in us. And we get to watch that happen in our neighbor as he comes through us, makes an appearance. So it's really, under, it's really of good benefit to get the allegory. What I mean by that is, when you read these stories, realize that the prophetic language about Jesus was full of signs and metaphors and allegories. It was trying to get you to think, not in literal terms, but in prophetic terms. That's why I said they saw through it darkly. They didn't know exactly what they were seeing. But it's full of imagery. Take this, for instance. Go back into that text. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you're one of the little clans. The one that's going to come forth is going to rule in Israel. His or, I'm at the end of verse 2. His origin is from old, from ancient days. Now, in each verse that we read, there is a particular literary allegory that's inside of each one of those verses that if you compare it to the text from the Old Testament that they would have known, how many of you realize they're Jewish and they know the Torah and the law and the prophets? Probably a lot better than we do. And, and they would have known those stories and cross-referenced them. For instance, they would have heard, if they heard a story of a flood, their mind would go to Noah. If they hear a story of a giant falling, their mind will go to David. We do that. We do it a little slower because we're a little bit bound by historicity and literalism. Because we, we see all the stories as, as telling you what happened one move after the other. They look at them as signposts. And so we look at the story and try to figure out all the details. They're not getting lost in the details. They're letting the allegory speak. So my, my example of Noah and the flood, we're wanting to know where the boat is, how big it was. Could all those animals have actually survived? Could they get all that food on there? What'd they do with the waste? I mean, what, those animals, what happened when those animals went to the bathroom? Did they just shovel all that off the deck? Is it really feasible that they only had one door? What were the windows like? How do you let the bird go and the bird come back? That's what we do with that story. What they do with that story is God provides a way out of great disaster if you'll listen and pay attention. You go, oh, well, that's way too simple. They go, oh, are you sure? Or are you sure that's not the deepest thing you've ever heard in your life? That if you'll pay attention, God will show you how to float over your stuff. And that if you'll do it as he told you to do it, you'll make it to the other side. You go, okay, well, well that might be a lot deeper than what, how do they shovel off the, the dung from the lion pit. But that's what we've done. That's how we handle it. So when you read stuff like Micah 5, I'm being humorous to try to just show you that our approach is not the same as their approach. When you read stuff like Micah 5, just realize that while we're trying to figure out all the ins and outs, what's that story? Whose origin is from old of ancient days? Does this mean they could trace Jesus' lineage back to the ancient? Don't get lost in the details. Realize you're dealing with a comparative allegory. And here's what they would have known. The book of Daniel says that when God's kingdom comes to fruition, when God becomes king over the kingdoms of the earth, what he will do 
is he will, he will hand that kingdom over to the Son of Man who rides on a cloud and stands in front of the Ancient of Days. Daniel said, God's the one called the Ancient of Days. So when Micah uses the phrase, he is from the ancient of old days, their minds would have went ding, ding, ding. Micah and Daniel are talking about the same guy. Micah's talking about that one from the ancient of days who stands in front of God. This must be someone closely related to God. This must be someone who was with him in the beginning. See how different it is as we let the, the, the scriptures speak to the scriptures. This is also why Bible study is so vital. That's why we got to take a look at more than just the verse of the day. <laughs> verse of the day is nice, but you don't just live on a little protein bar. You know, there's going to have to be a meal in there once in a while. So that's kind of why ch checking out those other passages are important. So I want to connect some dots. All right. So, so ancient, ancient days would have got them thinking in Daniel terms. That would have got them thinking kingdom. That would have got them thinking handed over. That would have got them thinking Riding on the clouds of judgment. This is why when Jesus started talking about riding on clouds, what do we do with that? Someday, look up in the sky. Someday, Jesus is going to be riding on a horse on a cloud. His audience would have went, riding on the clouds is a spiritual metaphor for the one who stands in front of God and receives the kingdom. So when Jesus says ride on the cloud, he's calling himself the one who gets to stand in front of God and receive the kingdom. And so they would think of those things in different terms than we do. Much, what sounds sometimes shallow, much deeper. Because there's a lot, of, a lot of things that go into that, all right? Look at the third verse. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, and then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And if we're reading this in literal terms, then it looks like whoever this guy is, if we can admit that maybe it's Jesus, because he's born in Bethlehem and he's from the ancient, so we can at least go, okay, he's probably Jesus. What's all this waiting around until the woman has the baby stuff? And so we, we're trying to figure out who was it that was pregnant in the life of Jesus that would he had to wait around until she had her baby, until we start to realize that the allegory of pregnancy is the birthing of something new in the earth. And also, if we were to sneak back up into Micah chapter 4, verse 10, only one one chapter in front of our text, it says, Writhe and groan, daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. And so we're finding that Jerusalem is the woman in labor, and she's birthing something new. Whatever was old is passing away, and whatever's new is on the way. And so Micah says, he's going to be there until... His presence is going to mark the labor. And, when, and then when her labor is finished, he's going to gather all of true Israel unto himself. And so what we have is Jesus coming into Jerusalem and Jerusalem is groaning in the ministry of Jesus. He looks at Jerusalem and goes, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how often I wanted to take you in as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not let me. He goes, you, you who have stoned the prophets before me, the blood of those previous generations is going to be held on you. Your house is about to be left into you desolate. And within one generation of the resurrection of Jesus, Jerusalem is, is leveled to the ground by the invading Roman Empire. The birth of a brand new covenant happens through the ministry of the one from Bethlehem. And his ministry encompasses her birth groans. What, what, what birth groans? Jerusalem. So once again, we're talking in allegorical language. We're, watch, we're letting that, those stories speak to something bigger, something momentous in the life of Christ. Verse 4, 
He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 4 shows us that whoever is coming from Bethlehem, and we all admit that must be Jesus, at least Matthew 2 thought it was, because they quoted Micah chapter 5, then whoever, is, whoever comes from Bethlehem is going to feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Who feeds a flock? A shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus, knowing Micah 5, says, I'm the good shepherd. He goes, I'll give my life for the sheep. Nobody else had called him a shepherd. He called himself a shepherd. We have no indication that Jesus was actually a shepherd. That he was laboring in fields as a shepherd. But he called himself a shepherd. What gave him the right to call himself a shepherd? Well, maybe Micah chapter 5 gave him the right. He thought, if I'm from Bethlehem, and I'm from the Ancient of Days, and I'm hanging out while the birth pains are happening in Jerusalem, then I must be the shepherd. And if I'm the shepherd, that means i got to take care of sheep. And so Jesus goes ahead and buys in. In John 10, and he goes, not only am I the good shepherd, but you're the sheep that know my voice. And if you know my voice, you'll come flocking to me. And he goes, and if you come to me, I'll open the door. You can come in and out and find pasture. I'm going to lead you to the good place. He goes, by the way, everybody that came before me was a thief and a robber. He goes, the only way to get into the good fold is to come in through the door. And he goes, guess who the door is? I'm not only the good shepherd, I'm also the door. And Jesus starts to pit himself as the character from Micah chapter 5. We don't see Jesus' name here but we see Jesus here and as we see Jesus here we start to turn the spotlight on all these beautiful aspects of Jesus now I, I, I personally think this is this makes the Old Testament fun again all right so because I'm not reading the Old Testament now going oh look at all this stuff I gotta do I'm finding Jesus standing in the shadows everywhere I'm finding that that uphill climb to get me to Bethlehem which is ultimately to get me up Calvary's hill which is ultimately to get me out of a tomb which is to ascend me in, uh, to the right hand of the Father. We're on our way, man. And if, as I can watch Jesus do that work, then that can ease my soul and I can land in verse 5. And he shall be the one of peace. The one of peace. Well, that one's easy, right? Paul said in Romans 5, we are now at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Hear that. Let me say it again. We are now at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Me and God are not at odds. I'm not in a fight with God. God's not in a fight with me. God's not mad at me. God's not mad at you. God can't be ticked off. We're at peace with God. I even propose whatever war we were in with God was on our part, not his part. Okay? I'm not at war with my kids. My kids might feel at war with me. Uh, that that's just happens. But I'm not at war with my kids. I'm not, I, God's not at war with you. I want to encourage you. You, you, might, you might have made mistakes, tripped and fell along the way. God's not on the war path. God's not hunting you down tonight to find you and beat you up. Jesus has already taken the sin of the world and it's been nailed to the cross. Evil has been punished. Sin has been judged. In Christ, my sins have been placed. So have yours. There's no man, woman, boy, or girl that's ever lived that escaped the love expressed at Calvary. Christ makes us at peace with God. The Bible calls Jesus the 
Prince of Peace. We'll get to that. I'll, we're going to land. In fact, let me just take you there. Just, just so you know, and this will be our, this will be, keep a ribbon, Micah, all right? Isaiah 9. You had a little prophet? Give me, let me give you a big prophet. Minor prophet, major prophet? Watch this allegory. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Now, I want to I show you something. No mention of Jesus in this verse. The name Jesus does not appear. But watch what happens in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you know why we call Jesus the Prince of Peace? Not because of a verse in the New Testament, but because of a verse in the Old Testament. Because what we do is we realize that Isaiah 9 is not talking about a kid born in his generation. He's talking about a kid born in the generation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's talking about our Jesus. And what's he call him? These are some major titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 7. His authority shall grow continuously. And there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and withhold it uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time on and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this so according to isaiah 9 the peace of god starts with jesus and never ends we've been two thousand years since the first advent of jesus and the world is not at peace with each other but we need to realize the world is at peace with god and so we're we need to stop with the message of God coming after people, God angry at people, God on the war path against people. The peace of Christ that passes all understanding is spreading upon the earth. It's, in, it's capable for every man, woman, boy, or girl to have that peace here. How does Paul say it? We're at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. As I meet Jesus, I come into peace with God. I also like this, as Romans 5 unfolds, as Paul talks, Paul's kind of circular in Romans. He's talking it out. And as he talks, he, he even switches it up a little deeper into Romans 5. And he, he talks about how if our faith wavers, if, if we struggle, we're still justified by the blood of Jesus. We're, we're made at peace through faith in Christ. We stay at peace through the blood of Christ, which tells me sometimes my faith does this. I'm probably the only one in this room. You guys are all up here with faith. I get that. I know. I recognize the room. All top shelf faith. Well, okay. But guys like me, roller coaster faith. Okay. Some days I'm really doing well. And some days I'm, I'm bottomed out pretty bad. Good news. I don't remain at peace with God because Paul White's faith stays high. I remain at peace with God because the blood of Jesus is eternal. That's good news. So I am at peace with God through faith in Christ, but I don't fall in and out of peace. I might, I might lay peace down and pick up stress and pick up discouragements and pick up the ways of this world. His peace is still mine. If I, his peace is, it's his peace. It's not my peace. If I can, if I can stay focused on this is why you need your prayer time. This is why you need your quiet time with him. This is why you need to be able to listen to him and push those other things out. Because as you listen to him, his peace floods your soul. You start to live in that peace and walk in that peace. And then you start to lay that other stuff down. You lay down the baggage of the world and you pick up the peace of Jesus. But 
How many of you know that even we're not always good at that? Good thing is God doesn't go on a war path. Go, where, what's, where, Larry, where's your peace been lately? You know what? I'm coming after you. <laughs> I'll be in trouble. I'll be in trouble. There's going to be days where I go, oh, I'm in trouble. No, I'm at peace with God through faith in Christ. I stay there because of the blood of Jesus. That's good news. That's Jesus. That's why we got to preach Jesus. That's why we got to talk Jesus and teach Jesus and shine the light on Jesus. Because Micah said, he shall be the one of peace. Okay, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's from the ancient of days. He's, gonna, he's going to be here to gather the people in as long as the woman is in birth pains. Who's the woman? Micah 4. Jerusalem is the woman in birth pains. And then he's going to gather to himself what Paul calls in Galatians 6, true Israel. And Paul described in Galatians a true Israel, those who believed on Jesus. So Jesus is building a, a family in Micah 5. The one from Bethlehem is building a family in Micah 5. And he's going to shepherd them well, because that's what he does. And he's going to be the man of peace. End of sermon, right? There it is. There's Jesus. That's what he does. Not end of sermon for this crucial point. Because in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you, O Bethlehem, I want you to notice this. And if you're an underliner, man, this is worth it. Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Why does Micah throw in Ephrathah? Bethlehem, when we think of Jesus was born in Bethlehem, no one ever says Jesus was born in Bethlehem right up next to Ephrathah. You know? <laughs> but there it is in Micah 5. Because when you and I would, when we, when we read the word and we, we watch what he's doing, we think, in, we, we think in those geographical terms, but remember they're reading the text through allegorical terms, all right? So Ephrathah is located next to Bethlehem, but what does Ephrathah mean to a Hebrew? All right, and here's what you might want to jot down. Ephrathah actually means in the Hebrew ash heap. It's a heap of the ashes that come from a fire. Once the fire is done, you heap the ashes together. That's Ephrathah. That's literally what Ephrathah means in Hebrew is place of the ashes. But what, what was it geographically? According to Genesis 35, it's the place Rachel was buried. When Jacob lost his wife, Rachel, and I'll give you a really quick synopsis of that story. When Jacob lost his wife, Rachel, he lost her at a little place called Ephrathah, and he buries her body at Ephrathah, and then he, he and his family continue to move on. Well, he moves on with a little baby boy that he names Benjamin, because Benjamin was born, and Rachel died in childbirth. And Rachel dies, and the last words on her come out of her mouth in Genesis 35, she names her son Benoni. Benoni in the Hebrew is son of sorrow. So she dies crying. She dies wailing over this boy that she knows is killing her as she's born, as the baby is born. So as Benoni is born, son of sorrow, Rachel takes her last breath. Jacob picks the baby up and changes its name. He doesn't want to call it Benoni because he doesn't want to think of sorrow every time he looks at this boy. So he names the baby Benjamin, son of my right hand. And the right hand is the chief blessing. So naming his youngest son, son of my right hand, was mind-blowing to, to whoever ever met Benjamin because son of my right hand is my firstborn. They get everything. They get twice as much as everybody else. And so you're watching Jacob grieve his wife every time he looks at Benjamin. That's, that's why Benjamin is so precious to Jacob. You get into the Joseph story and 
they, Jacob won't let Benjamin go to Egypt. And I'm not letting Benjamin out of my sight. Why? Because Benjamin is my connection to Rachel. Benjamin is my connection to the past. Benjamin's my hope for the future. Benjamin's life has to matter because Rachel died having him. So Benjamin's my precious one. Benjamin's the one that gets it all because I'm not going to let her die in vain. That's Ephrathah. Why is it an ash heap? Because hopes and dreams died at Ephrathah. The love of a man's life died at Ephrathah. The future died at Ephrathah. Every loss you've ever had is at Ephrathah. Every heartache, every tear you've ever cried, every ounce of pain you've ever faced, that's Ephrathah. That's the heap. That's what's left over from your burned up dreams and your burned up hopes and you're burned out. Whatever. That's, what, that's why I spent all that time talking about allegory. Because it meant something. For us, it's geography. We, we mess this up. We go, Where's effort, though? Is that close to Bethlehem? What? But for them, it meant, it's why Micah throws it in. Because Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem is the place where you get to eat something fresh. Jesus is born at the house of bread because he is the bread that comes down from God out of heaven. But the house of bread is built at Ephrathah. God's bread comes out of our ashes. Life comes out of our death. Life comes out of our loss. Christ is born where something in us dies. That's the advent of Jesus. That's why we celebrate the Christmas season, because you have your own ash heap. You have an ash heap. It looks different from you to you to you to me. Some ash heaps are dreams, hopes, kids, spouse, relative, parent, something that's gone, heart broke, pain, loss, you'll never be the same again. Jesus arriving starts right there for all of us. Where, where, do, where do we meet him? We meet him right there. We meet him at that place of great pain because Jesus takes over where we're at a loss. He could have been born in Rome. He could have been born in Jerusalem. But he's born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem sits next to the ash heap and what a better place for God to take on human flesh than the place of our ashes and our loss and our pain and our failure. You want to meet Him? That's where you'll always meet Him. Wherever there's a broken piece of you, that's where you'll meet Him. Wherever something in you has died, that's where you'll meet Him. Wherever your past meets your destiny, that's where you'll meet Jesus. If he's born in Rome, then he's born in power. And where does he meet you? At your best place. If he's born in Jerusalem, then he's born in religion. And where does he meet you? At your holiest place. But if he's born in Bethlehem, where does he meet you? At your worst place. At the place where there's just nothing to live for anymore. And he goes, welcome. This is where I want to be born. This is where I want to meet you. Because I want to walk with you from Ephrathah. I don't want to walk with you from Rome. I don't want to walk with you from Jerusalem. I want to walk with you from your broken place. I want to meet you in your pain. I want to live here with you. Oh, we're going to bake bread. 
but we're going to build it off the ashes of the old embers of your life. That's where the fire is going to come from. We're going to make something good come from something lost. When you get a little deeper into Matthew 2, and you guys read the nativity story in the next week, if you sit down and you read Matthew 2, this amazing moment, and they quote Micah, watch what happens next in the story whenever the wise men decide to take a different route back to the east because they were visited in a dream and the angel said to them, don't go tell Herod where this baby is. And so Herod finds out that they've snuck back to the east. And Herod, in the most awful and disgusting moment, maybe in all of the Bible, orders the slaughter of the innocents. Every wicked man that's ever lived, every pitiful dictator or ruler or leader or cult figurehead owes a little something of his evil to Herod who orders the execution of every baby boy aged two and under in that area because he's trying to find the Jesus that he missed. So every other boy has to die. Have you ever thought about that? This is a side. This hit me. I was up in the pulpit a few years ago when this hit me, that Jesus carried this burden with him his entire adult life, that he had no peer from his hometown because his existence killed every baby boy within two years of himself. You imagine that? Jesus carried that to the cross. He didn't kill them, but his existence killed them. Because that's, that's the pushback of darkness against the light. Is that everything that tries to encounter the light has to encounter the darkness. It's, it's our creation story. We, we suffer at the darkness. Don't ever think that Jesus didn't have to suffer a little bit in the darkness. He carried that darkness with him day and night. I, I don't know if he, I don't. I can't even imagine that. You? I don't even, I don't even know what to say about it. Um, he's a man acquainted with sorrow, the Bible says. How? How was he not? He thought about it every time he closed his eyes. Acquainted with grief. Acquainted with sorrow. When Herod slaughters those babies. Matthew chapter 2 quotes another passage from the Old Testament. It quotes, that, uh, it quotes a little verse from Jeremiah in which Jeremiah says, Rachel laments for her children, which is an obscure moment. Rachel laments for her children. And it says this is in fulfillment. These, these babies dying is what Rachel's lamenting over. So I did a little research into that and found that what, what happened is that the Hebrew people had a legend. Are we okay with legends? We, we always look at legends and are like, oh, that's silly. But you need to get to the source of why a legend exists. I mean, it might not be true, but it's relevant, right? It's like myths to me. Like I read mythology now and think, okay, it didn't have to be true. It was real. Because there's something real in that myth that centuries worth of people gravitated to. So it didn't have to be a true story. It had to have something true in it. We need to stop looking for stories to see if they're true and start seeing if there's truth. That's the point of a good story. Is there truth? That's the ones that last, by the way. Even novels or movies. It's not just the ones that are shot well, good acting, good lighting, good costumes, good makeup. If they speak truth, 
in some way, we go, okay, that's going to last the test of time. That says something. There was a legend in Israel that if you got close enough to Ephrathah, you could hear Rachel crying. And so a lot of Israelites would kind of avoid Ephrathah because they believed they could hear Rachel wail in the night. Now you go, well, that's just a ghost story. It was so powerful that Jeremiah picks it up and goes, Rachel will wail indeed for her children. And Matthew 2 says, when Herod slaughtered the babies, Rachel wailed to her, for her children. And we Christians read that and go, hmm, I wonder what that's about. But in Jesus' day, the people living it out went, I heard that story my whole life. I mean, there's a little bit of truth to the pain of Rachel. And if Jesus is who we think he is, he was born where Rachel cries. And out of that, Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus comes out of the tomb. Jesus dries the, we, the crying eye. Jesus touches the leper. Jesus, Jesus bakes bread on the cold ashes of all of our wailing, all my stuff. Here comes Jesus. The old legend of the phoenix rising from the ashes, I think has to take its root really, really deep. Deeper than some Native American imagery, which maybe it was passed to them by the angels, I don't know. But maybe all the way back to Bethlehem of Ephrathah, that something is birthed out of your loss. And it is Christ. You see, Really, Jesus enters the ash heap of Adam and Eve's sin. He enters the ash heap of the world. And out of it, he brings forth something beautiful, something wonderful. Ashes are our condition. They're what's left over when things are broken. They're also what's left over at the end of judgments. They're what's left over when the chaff is burned and the wheat is separated. They're what's left over when God, the consuming fire, gets a hold of whatever was in us. And then whatever dies out, because see, I'm a big fan of God the consuming fire. I'm not scared of God the consuming fire. He's on my side. I want him to consume whatever needs consumed, and I think he's perfectly capable. I think we're making a huge mistake on our, on our theology when we try to take that and make that old covenant. Oh, God was only a consuming fire in the old covenant. What? Jesus' fan is in his hand and he thoroughly purges his floor and he gathers his wheat into the barn and he burns your chaff with unquenchable fire. That's Jesus burning off what you don't need. That's not old covenant. That's the beauty of a new covenant. And you know what? The beauty is Bethlehem butts right up next to Ephrathah. So whatever ashes are left over in the furnace after he gets done burning them, it's okay because he's always going to bake bread right there. Right there. Whatever he takes out of you, he puts something new in. If God's a consuming fire, he's also that which rises up out of the fire. He's also that which holds your hand in the fire and goes, it's okay. There's stuff in you that's going to go, but that's fine because wherever the stuff goes, that's where I'll be born. I'm birthed in your weakness. This is why Paul got it. Paul got it in Corinthians and he goes, I have found that my strength is, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. He goes, at my lowest point, Jesus is at his best. Why? Because I've learned that wherever I fall down, whatever, wherever I'm broken, wherever I'm burned out, wherever I'm burned up, 
God always does something great there. I don't know how to explain it, but he always does something great there. He makes something better out of me. That part of me that's gone, I didn't need it anyway. I thought I needed it. I held on to it forever. And then it was gone and Jesus made something beautiful in the midst of that. Something wonderful for me. Go one more time to Isaiah 61. I want to land this. Big Isaiah. He has more to say. He probably has more to say about the coming Messiah than any other book of the Old Testament. You could almost find Jesus in every single chapter of the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. It's one of those amazing books that mirror the Bible in so many ways. There are 66 books of the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And you'll be able to find Jesus almost from creation to revelation. You'll be able to find Jesus from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 66. One of those awesome moments. Isaiah chapter 61. Look at verse 1. This is going to sound very familiar because Jesus reads from this in Luke chapter 4 on a Saturday morning in the synagogue when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now we're really familiar with most of that. Like I say, Jesus quotes that, reads that in Isaiah 61. If you stop there, it's already beautiful. But what would happen if we read just a little further? Because this thing is about Jesus. To provide for those, verse 3, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the mantle of praise instead of their faint spirit, and they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. Look at that. I'm going to give them a garland. A garland crown was the victor's crown. He says, I'm going to exchange their burned out ashes for a victor's crown and I'm going to birth a brand new oak tree in the middle of their ashes. This is Jesus' promise before he's ever even born. This is what Isaiah 61 says he's going to come to do. Wherever you have ashes, he says, I'm going to make you a victor there. And right there, I'm going to plant you as a brand new tree of righteousness. You won't be able to help yourself. I'll plant you. You'll be righteous whether you like it or not. You see, you burned up and you didn't like it. You burned up and that wasn't your choice. All right? Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it better. Out of that, I'm going to make something that's going to be the shade tree for the nations. It's going to be fruit that blesses your family and the generations after you. You see, God was never concerned with just one guy or one family or one nation on the earth. The whole earth is the fullness of the Lord's. He was looking for everyone. It's why one of my favorite kingdom parables is Jesus says, the kingdom is like a man that puts a seed in the ground. It grows into a great tree and in its branches nestle all the fowls of the earth. You go, wow. Even the carrion, even the, even the meat eaters and the predators. Yeah, every bird gets to find a home in the kingdom. The point of the kingdom of God is to plant trees in the middle of your ashes. Point of the kingdom is not so that people never have a problem. Point of the kingdom is so that people have a future after their problem. If we're preaching the kingdom as we're releasing people, you know, never going to have any issues. You're just lying to people. They know better. But if you're preaching the kingdom as the kingdom is hope in the middle of your ashes, welcome to Jesus. You know where Jesus is born? The least place you expect him. Right up next to Rachel's wailing. Find the biggest hurt. 
biggest pain, biggest heartache, biggest opportunity for Jesus. It's where he does his best work. You want to know why the church is so precious? Because it's full of broken people. That's it, man. Just full of broken people. People with pasts, people with problems, people with issues. Church is just full of broken people, and that's beautiful. Jesus is right at home because he was born in a manger in Bethlehem with the sound on the wind of Rachel wailing. And into that comes Jesus and goes, I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm here for crying people. That's why when Jesus reads the Spirit of the Lord, he says, bring good news to the oppressed, the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captive, release the prisoners. He was in his wheelhouse, man. He's home. He's going, this is where I belong. You broken people. This is why he's hugging lepers and he's hanging out with publicans and sinners. We go, oh, he's just trying to show us how to love. He was showing us the people he's comfortable with. He's at home with those who are broken and wounded and messed up and in need and burned burned out and burned up. That's where he does his best work. It's in that moment. That's the Jesus that's going to change the world. That's the kingdom that has no end. That's the Jesus that works. That's the Jesus I've fallen in love with. That's the Jesus I get a little hot to defend. I start bad-mouthing the Father, making him look angry, mad at people, ticked off. I see God through Jesus, and I think, how dare you say that about my dad? Don't talk about my father that way. He's full of love. You, you have no idea how many times he's held your hand in the midst of your pain, your chaos. If it happened to you, it happened to him. He didn't stand off at the distance and go, when you come out, I'll find you at church. He walked into hell with you. Walked into hell with you, and when you hurt, he hurt. He said, out of this, we'd make something happen. I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. When it happens to you, it happens to me, he says. And as it's happening to you, I'm already thinking about your tomorrow. I got the seeds for the oak tree we're going to plant in the middle of this chaos. Let's just ride this out together, you and me. Otherwise, what are you left with? Just pain, hopelessness, hurt, anger, bitterness, no future. Things are cut off and burned up. You got no tomorrow. But then comes Jesus. Father, thank you for tonight. I've had... I've had a revelation of you just standing here talking about you. I've had such a powerful, overwhelming revelation of your love. And in any of the ashes of my life, some of which I set on fire myself because I'm, I'm not always doing things right. And some of them was just the world around me setting stuff on fire. Some of them was your consuming fire, burning up what needed to burn up. But there's Bethlehem. There comes Jesus. Thank you. I had, I had a new revelation of that tonight. And I thank you for that. If anybody else had that too, Father, I pray that it's as impactful for them as it is for me. Thank you for what you're going to do out of that. In Jesus' name. Amen.